0: Alright, tonight we're in the book of Jude, and last week we were in 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 1 have a great deal in common. It's almost like Jude was copying off Peter or Peter was copying off Jude. Sometimes preachers steal sermons, and it's almost like these guys did that because they talk about so much of the same stuff, and... I think last week's subject is worth continuing. Last week we talked about brute beasts and their feigned words. And I do think it needs, I want to continue it because Jude talks about the same thing. This term brute beasts, that that term or that expression is only used in 2 Peter 2 and Jude. And we're going to see some differences in what Jude talks about from what Peter. And I'm telling you, it's pretty astounding What we see and what I'm going to preach in this message, uh, some of it might come off as a little mean, but understand we're always going to get accused when we take the Bible. You're always, you know, the trendies will always tell you, you know, just preach the Bible, but that, but don't ever make application. You know, you can show us what the Bible says, but don't ever use a real life example, you know, that we can all relate to because that makes people uncomfortable, but we're going to do that tonight because this stuff is, is very important. So we'll start reading verse 3. It says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, notice how the faith is singular. There is no such thing as the faiths. Okay? There's one faith. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Now notice how this faith that they were to earnestly contend for. And I, folks, please pay attention. I am not going to play tricks with the Bible tonight. You say, you're just using Scripture to fit your agenda. I don't want to have an agenda. I want to preach the Bible. I'm learning more and more. I'm getting sick of this topical preaching where I want to talk about a subject. I'm going to find a verse that fits that and I'm just going to talk, and say what I want to say. Let me tell you, the Bible preaches better sermons than I'll ever be able to preach. And the Bible sermons are the good ones. And I, I, and that's what I want to do tonight. I'm going to try to preach a Bible sermon. Obviously, I'm going to make modern day application for us today. But I, I'm telling you, I don't think I can be any more honest with the Scriptures than I am tonight. And, 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 I, and I hope you'll see that. I hope I can show you that. And so, that faith that was once delivered unto the saints is clearly... He said, I want you to contend for that faith that was once delivered to the saints, referring to something from the past. Now, this was written in roughly 67 A.D., according to what most people believe. But this faith that was once delivered to the saints, is he referring to contend for that faith that was delivered 30 years ago that Jesus brought in? Are we talking about something older? We're talking about something older, ladies and gentlemen. He said, I want you to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered. We do not believe that Jesus or Paul, brought in a new gospel. We believe the gospel was fulfilled at the coming of Jesus Christ. We understand Jesus' ministry on earth was Him fulfilling all things that the prophets had written concerning Him. Luke 24, 24, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection, and it says, "...and certain of them which were with us went into the sepulchre and found it even so as the women had said. But they saw not. Then He said unto them, Jesus is speaking, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We believe the prophets. But wait a minute. They didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the women told them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, ah, we don't really believe it. Jesus said, fools. Not, not because they didn't believe the women. Because they didn't believe the prophets. The prophets prophesied of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? In beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. What did Jesus preach? The death, burial, and resurrection of Himself from Moses and all the prophets. And let me tell you, Ruckmanites are constantly, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. I agree with that. But they'll say that as if it's not in the Old Testament because we don't see those words. And I'll, and I'll explain what they do, how they interpret the Scriptures. But let me tell you, it is damnable heresy to take words like gospel, faith, etc., and, and just to add an S to it. To talk about gospels rather than gospel. There's only one. So verse 4, Jude, and Jude says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice these brute beasts, how they creep in. Okay, and let me, they are not always going to be obvious at first, but they will reveal themselves. They will always reveal themselves. Now, he's about to use judgments from the past to prove that God will punish these brute beasts. We're not going to take time to read it, but in verses 5 through 10, he goes through and says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroy them believe not and he gives several examples to show them hey listen guys god is serious about judgment and god just like he judged the sodomites just like god judged all these other people he's going to judge these false prophets that are coming in among you he's going to destroy them you better stay away from these people that's what he that's what he does in verses five through ten so these brute beasts notice what it says in verse 10 watch this but these speak evil of those things which they know not. Watch this. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. So these brute beasts, and again, I'm only going to call Bible names tonight. At least I'm going to try. Brute beasts, and I might call them creeps too because they creep in. So I think it's appropriate to do that. They are revealed by the things that they speak. That's what Jude teaches. And it is crystal clear what he's talking about here. And without a doubt, we can see this exact same thing happen with another special group of heretics that I want to talk about tonight. And that are dispensationalists. Last week, we talked a lot about the Calvinists and how the Calvinists, they love to use their great swelling words of vanity like Peter talked about. They love to use their feigned words. That's what Peter talked about. But tonight, I want to show you the dispensationalists how they are a better fit for the description of what we see in Jude. And I do want to make one thing clear. I do not believe that all who identify themselves as dispensationalists are unsaved or brute beasts. I do believe, though, however, that many of God's people that are in God's churches in the past and in the present have been influenced and infected by the words and the doctrines that certain brute beasts privily snuck into the church and I believe it has devastated Baptist churches and I do believe if I I will just name a few of the original creeps of this stuff Darby Larkin and Schofield for sure the original creeps of dispensation they crept into churches they crept it in through the notes of the Schofield Bible they crept it in through Clarence Larkin's dispensational truth they, they crept in through the teachings of John Nelson Darby, the father of dispensationalism. These were the original creeps. I do believe in modern days we have some new disciples of these brute beasts. I believe one of them's dead. His name is Peter Ruckman. But I do believe he has his disciples who have crept in to good, independent, fundamental Baptist church, barfing their heresy all over the place. Men like Sam Gipp, men like Bill Grady, Men like the Andrew Sluter, the unholy trinity of the Ruckmanites, I believe these guys are... I, I believe these men are brute beasts. And I will show you from the Scriptures, I will show you from their own words, I do not believe I am going out on a limb here. I'm going to show... And I, I have video evidence. I'm going, I'm going to show it on a podcast I'm doing this week uh, where they are doing exactly what Jude, Jude describes in this passage. You know, are we not allowed when we see Jude warn us and Peter warn us and say, this is what they're going to do. When we see someone do it, can't we say something about it? Well, that, that's really divisive and mean. We were warned in the Scriptures to watch for this. If, if we see it, isn't it our job to say something about it? Of course we should say something about it. And so, again, the, the two biggest cancers that infect doctrine in good churches come from the Calvinists on one side, and then from the dispensationalists on the other side. And so what Peter described, it does. It fits the Calvinist perfectly. What Jude describes, it does. It perfectly describes the dispensationalists. And let me just say this too, for any of the saved dispensationalists who might watch this message. I do believe many of them are in fact saved, but many of them when they speak, they use the language and the terminology of the brute beast's, And their language has confused their doctrine. And it is very important that they correct their doctrine. It's very important they correct their speech and become more clear on scriptures. And so, if I may say something that we should all be able to agree on, everybody should be able to agree with this. Use of theological terms, like we talked about last week, does not necessarily equal teaching heresy. Some, ter- some theological terms make sense. They're accurate. You know, they, they have a good definition. They send a good message. But you know what? I think the words of God are better. And the truth is, if you're right on your doctrine, then you shouldn't fear using biblical language. Biblical language shouldn't mess up your doctrine. If it does, there's probably something wrong with your doctrine. And so, you, so I'm not afraid of that. If, if my position is correct... Biblical doctrine shouldn't change that. In fact, the more I try to focus on biblical language, to me, the more it helps us clarify what we actually believe and it causes less confusion because I hate confusing people. And a lot of our theological terms, while many people, when they use them, I know what they mean and I agree with what they believe, those terms often cause confusion and I don't want to cause confusion. And I don't want to repeat some of that stuff we talked about last week, but how you talk tells us much about you. Just like people's accents identify them and what part of the country they live in, understand the words people use in theology, it tells us who they've been listening to. It, it really does. And so let's look at some examples of ways people are using or misusing God's words today. And let's compare it to what we see as described in Jude. So again, last week we talked about the great swelling words. Today, what we're going to see are words that as many, you know, that mostly dispensationalists use and what they do and how they just subtly change the words or they add to them or often redefine them. Dispensationalists like to take words that are rarely used in the Bible. Those are the ones that are easier to redefine, but you can sound biblical. You know, and so when you're saying paraclesis or something like that, you know, people are going to like, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? That's not even, that, that word's not in the Bible, and I, I forgot what that even means. But at the same time, too, if you use a word that's in the Bible, like dispensation, it's only in there four times. So it's not going to be super obvious, maybe, you know, what it means to some people, if it's only in there one time. So they do, they like to redefine them. And so understand, not every example I use is going to fit all dispensationalists, Okay. Again, I, do, I believe there's a lot of good, saved people who identify with that doctrine. I wish they didn't do that. But at the same time, too, they're, they're good people. I'd recommend their churches. They're my brothers. But uh, at the same time, you've you got to watch out for that. They really need to watch out for this stuff. And so brute beasts, first thing, first thing about brute beasts, like Jude describes, they are incapable of seeing the spiritual message from the words of God. Because notice what it says in verse 10, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. So we understand the words of God. We saw this last week. They're spiritual. We understand that we saw last week, the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Oh, there are spiritual truths a lost man can't get. So, if we have a scripture about a spiritual truth, and we've got a brute beast behind the pulpit, what's going to happen? Well, any, no, it's anyone's guess what could happen, but I will show you what has happened in certain instances. For example, uh, here's uh, a Ruckmanite revealing his spiritually dead state, and that's Sam Git. This is what he said in the message. And don't get nervous. and you know, I mean. No, we, God said this was going to happen. If we don't have Sam Gipps come into Baptist churches, and you know what that means? The Bible was wrong. We're going to have them come. The Bill Grady's are going to come. The Bible warned us about it. And I listen, I was there. Before I heard Sam Gipps say this stuff, I liked him. I remember the first time I heard the clip of him saying Jesus wasn't his Messiah. I was like, uh, you know, I, I made so many excuses for him. Because I I liked him. He was funny. You know, he he preached stuff that blessed my soul many times. And uh, my spirit, don't really remember, but I remember my soul getting blessed several times from his preaching. And it was hard. It didn't make me feel good. But we were told this kind of thing was going to happen. And it's not supposed to be easy when it happens. When somebody reveals themselves to be a heretic, we don't have to enjoy it. You know, we're allowed to feel bad about it. But this was a quote from him. He said, you know, I call Jesus a lot of things. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is my friend. He's a lot of things. You know what I never called Jesus Christ? He's not my Messiah. As a Gentile, I was never promised a Messiah. He is Israel's Messiah. Direct quote from one of his messages. So, here's the problem with that. John 1.41, He findeth first his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found Messiahs, which is being interpreted the Christ. Isn't it interesting? I said, you know what I never called Jesus Christ? I never call him my Messiah. You just did. You just called him Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. Verse uh, John 4, 21. So we understand Messiah and Christ are the same thing, according to the Bible. And in John 40, 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believest me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Talking to the Samaritan woman. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When when He has come, He will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I'm not your Messiah. Are, Are you a Jew? The Samaritans were never promised a Messiah. Is that what Jesus said? No. You know what He said to this woman who said, I know Messiah is cometh? I that speak unto thee am He. You know why? Because He was her Messiah too. Well, uh, okay, fine. That's because she was half Jew. <laughs> so the half Jews are okay, right? Well, this is what, Sam, this is what guys like Sam Gitt do. And, this, and I was there when He clarified what He said. I heard him do a clarification of this statement because he took so much grief for it. And let me tell you, his clarification was way worse. If you can imagine it's worse than he's not my Messiah. His clarification was much, it was much worse. He tried to teach that the the term Messiah, it encompasses many things. Okay, that's fine. And so he was saying, what he said, what, what I meant by that is you know, one of the, uh, terms Messiah means one of the jobs of Messiah, roles of Messiah, I forgot how he said it exactly, is to be a deliverer for Israel. And then he went to Romans 11. Romans 11, 26 says, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer that shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now here's what happens when a natural man, here's what happens when a brute beast takes the passage that is about a deliverer. You know what he sees? He sees a man delivering people from a physical enemy. That's what he sees. Okay? But notice it says he's going to not turn away Romans, turn away armies. He's going to turn away ungodliness from Jacob. He ignores the fact, too. Acts 3 shows that already happened. But here's what he doesn't do. He does. Notice it says, as it is written. Let's go to Isaiah 59 because he said. The role of the Messiah was—he was specifically referring to his role of deliverer. America was never promised deliverance. You know, Mexico wasn't promised deliverance. Um, meaning, in his mind, physical deliverance. But let's go to Isaiah 59:20. Look what it says: "And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob," saith the Lord. "As for me, this is my covenant with them," saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth nor out of the mouth of thy seed nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed saith the Lord from henceforward and forever. Notice that in Romans it called him a deliverer but it was quoting from a passage in Isaiah that called him a redeemer. You say, which one is it? Well, they mean the same thing. So let me ask, my question to Sam Giff is and I did ask him about this and he freaked out on me. And I, is He not your Redeemer? He didn't appreciate that question. Oh, I would have a promise to deliver. We don't promise to deliver as Americans. Wait, no. That's talking about a Redeemer. Do you... When when churches sing, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, or I will sing of my Redeemer, do you get up in church, He's not your Redeemer. Are you a Jew? No. You better believe He's our Redeemer. You better believe He's our Redeemer because... What He did was not come to deliver us from army; He came to deliver us from our sins. That's what the Messiah came to do. That's what Israel needed. And and understand too, that yes, the Gentiles were included. Because look at this in Isaiah 11.10, And in that day there should be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek. So we see that this, this ensign, this, this root of Jesse, this deliver, the Gentiles were going to seek after him too. Isaiah 49, 6. Because here, here's the other thing too. Do you know the word Messiah is only used two times in the Old Testament? Two times. In Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is the only place where that word is used in the Old Testament, but they make it like a Messiah is a special thing that's just for the Jews. That's only used in Daniel chapter 9. And and so, the, the, the thing is, He's just he's just telling you. No, it's this really specific thing. But no, understand, He obviously doesn't know what the word means. Isaiah 49.6 And He said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be My salvation unto the end of the earth Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and He shall choose thee. So that Redeemer of Israel, notice, He said, I'm also going to give you as a light to the Gentiles. It was prophesied that this Redeemer, this Redeemer that when Paul wrote about that Redeemer, called Him a Deliverer, Sam Gipp says that's only for the Jews, but the one who Paul was quoting said, yes, He's the Redeemer of Israel, but you know what? He's also for the Gentiles too. So guess what? Gentiles were promised a Messiah. And not only were they promised a Messiah, they were promised a Deliverer. They were promised a Redeemer. So Sam Gipp is just dead wrong. I don't care how you spin it, what Sam Git says about Jesus not being his Messiah, it is heretical, it is damnable, and he's not capable of seeing the truth. He only knows what he knows naturally as a brute beast. He doesn't see how important it is for a deliverer to come and to deliver people from their sins. What does he see? A military victory. A lost person can see a need for that. A lost person can understand a military victory. But you know what? It's not about military victories. That's not what we really need. That's not what's really important. What we need is salvation from our sins. So, he's not going to get it, folks. He's not going to get it. But you know what? Can Baptists at least say, hey, that's horrible. Get this guy out of our sight. I don't care what he says about the King James Bible. We We don't need him to defend our position in that area. We're not going to promote his videos. We're not going to show his junk. The last thing I'm going to do, Sam Giff has said some good things about the King James before, but the last thing I'm going to do is like show a video in our church of him talking up the King James and making some young people in here think he's a good guy, and then they hear him preaching his other stuff, and then leads him into who, who knows what kind of heresy. you got to watch out for that kind of thing. So the other one of the unholy trinity of Ruckmanites, Bill Grady. This was a statement Bill Grady said, says the, tip, he, the typical fundamentalist crowd that looks, you know, it has the same old hang-up about looking forward to the cross. The Old Testament saints, which is the biggest, dumbest bunch of junk you could ever come up with. And a lot of you good folks out there can't just keep carrying a Bible around without believing it. He, he said it's the biggest, dumbest bunch of junk to believe that the Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross. And what, what is he doing? He's speaking of evil He he's speaking evil of something he doesn't understand. But what he knows naturally is brute beast. Now, let me let me ask you a question because that folks, that is they were looking forward to the cross. That can't be more clear, but he can't get it. And he's not capable of getting because this is a spiritual truth. But let me ask you a question. Are you looking forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ? Are you looking forward to that? Well, 1 Peter 1.13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back, folks. And now, have we not already been given grace? Of course we have. But when he comes, we're going to get an extra dose of that. I don't know what that's going to... And you know what? I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I don't know what that's going to feel like. Do we not know Jesus right now? Of course we know Jesus right now, but are we going to know more about Him when we see Him? I think we'd all agree with that. That's us looking forward to Him. But at the same, this tells me, and I think we'd all agree, when Christ returns, we will know things about Him, about His grace, that we only know in part right now. Do you understand that? Right now, there are many things we only know in part. But when we know more fully about those same things, will it be a new thing? Will it be a new Jesus? Will it be a new grace? Will it be a new gospel? No. We will just know more about that gospel. We will know more about Jesus Christ. It's not a new thing. And so, in Luke 24, we already looked at that passage. When He tells them, they're slow of heart not to believe All the things that the prophets wrote. Did the prophets ever say death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in those words? In that combination of letters? No. But they insist that it must be there. They insist that you show them. You show me. They do it all the time. You show me one verse in the Old Testament where it says death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't have to. You know why? Because they're demanding I show a fuller picture of of what they only understood in part that time. But what they believed and uh, understood in part is the same thing that we have a fuller picture of today. It's not a new thing. It's the same thing. So this is, just kind, of a, this is kind of a straw man that they're making. In Genesis 3.15, when it says, "...and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." We understand that is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. They didn't have that part of the revelation yet. But if they believed what had been revealed at that time, then you know who they believed in? Jesus. If they believed in the seed of the woman, they believed in Jesus Christ. Without a doubt. Isaiah 53. I'm not even going to take the time to go, we, we refer to Isaiah 53 all the time. I think we talked about it this morning. Without a doubt. That is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If they believed in that, then guess what? They believed on Jesus Christ. They just didn't they, they only believed in part. They only believed in the part that they had received, but it was clearly the same thing. But this is what Rockman I this is what blows my mind and just shows the foolishness and the stupidity of these people. Over and over and over again, they go around screaming, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, but they, and, and, and we agree with that. But the problem is, they're saying that as if, because all they see are a combination of black words on white paper. Here's what they don't see, the message. They don't understand the spiritual message. And listen to this. This is what blows my mind. They repeat that over and over and over again, and here's the part they miss. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. What does that tell us? That the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection is... Is according to the scriptures. The Old Testament, they missed that. I, I, did, I went and searched on Esword and Sword Searcher and Bible Gateway, and I typed in Death, Burial, and Resurrection, searched by Old Testament, and you yes, know how many results I got? Zero. Well, again, it didn't say it in those words. But, that, but again, I, I got to see it in those words. got. Yeah, you know why? Because you're looking at this like a natural man. Those of you that are spiritual, You can't read Isaiah 53 without seeing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't read Genesis 3 and hear about the seed of a woman bruising the head of Satan without thinking about a virgin-born son named Jesus Christ that come along later. We can't unsee that. But these are spiritual truths that these guys are looking at and it's like, no, I don't see that combination of words because they don't understand spiritual truths. The last of the unholy trinity, Sluter, He literally has an entire sermon on YouTube on why he believes Jesus literally, literally became a worm when he died on the cross. Literally! Okay, so here, this is, this is a quote from his message. You know, he's kind of writhing around on the crosses in so much that, in so much pain, but folks, I believe that as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, his literal form becomes that of a worm. The Bible says, but what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his what? Soul. As Jesus Christ is hanging there on the cross, he literally loses his soul, and this is where it gets deep. And this is where a lot of people disagree with me, and that's fine. They can disagree with me and the Bible. But that he's hanging there on the cross, and his body turns into a worm. He becomes sin personified these hours of darkness. Where does his soul go? His soul goes to hell. The Bible says in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 10, But thou will not suffer thine holy one. To see corruption, neither wilt thou leave my soul in hell. Peter talks about Jesus' soul going to hell in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13. He says that this is the fulfillment, that thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. That's the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. If you notice the statements that Jesus makes on the cross, He says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A cry of a man in hell... He says, I thirst. A cry of a man in hell as Jesus hanging there, sin personified. Profi- he becomes a worm on the cross. His soul descends down into hell and for three hours he suffers the pains of hell. Now, so at least he's teaching Jesus went to hell. While well, he's on the cross, he teaches for three hours Jesus' soul was in hell while his body was a, turned into a worm. On the cross. Now, here's the scriptural evidence for that. Now, folks, you say, that is so dumb. Well, you know, again, natural, brute beasts. Now, Acts or Psalm 22, 6 says, But I am a worm and no man. There you go. Let's keep reading. A reproach of men and despise of the people. And they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. Now, is this passage here, it was written by David, but was this passage about prophetic about Jesus? Of, yes, it absolutely was. This is a prophetic passage about Jesus. I believe David, when he was writing, he was writing about himself. This was how he felt at a low point. But what he was writing about himself under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost was also prophetic about Jesus Christ. And many of the Psalms are like that. And when he said, but I am a worm and no man, that is to be taken literally according to Sluter, And so while it was dark, Jesus transformed into a worm there on the cross. But listen, anyone is capable of taking a Bible and reading that's able to read They can see what it says, but not everyone is able to get the message that's being delivered. And suppose, suppose we take a man who does not have a regenerated spirit. We show him spiritual things from the very words of God that are spirit. And I'm not talking about the gospel that has the power to save a soul, but spiritual truths. And we convince, and let's say we convince him. That everything that he is about to read in that passage is 100% true. And it is. But understand, we've convinced this unregenerate man that this passage is 100% true, but what it's speaking of are spiritual things that he's not capable of understanding. So can you understand what kind of horrors might come from his mouth as he speaks about these things? What do you think is going to happen when he reads spiritual things from the Bible? They're going to come up with Jesus literally becoming a worm. Okay? Now, what's this passage saying? It says, I am a worm. You know, a worm, it's not just like, a, like an earthworm or a nightcrawler like we see today. This is, like, this is talking about like a maggot. Okay? Now, what do we typically do when we see a maggot? <clears throat> okay? How many of you, if you're eating a sandwich or something, and you see a maggot in it, what happens to you? You freak out. You draw away. We don't want to even behold maggots. Why? Because they're disgusting. They are, they are gross. They are, they are some of the most just dis- disgusting things that there are. And so when he says, but I am a worm and no man, notice he's speaking figuratively a reproach of men and despise of the people. When Jesus hung there on the cross paying for the sins of man, when Jesus hung there on the cross, when he was being shamed and spit on and mocked, do you think anybody walked by him thinking, "I'd like to be identified with that guy"? No, they turned away from him. Folks, it's like that even today. There are things that are just disgusting. You see somebody that's in a horrible state, you know, you want to look away from it. You know, sometimes people show pictures of injuries and things people have. It's like ah, I don't want to see that. That's how Jesus was, and and people believed he was guilty and so they see that people turned away from him that's what it's talking about when he says but I am a worm he was a reproach this was this was how he was seen this is showing him being despised and Christ when he was on the cross he was despised of men he was smitten stricken of God this is that's what these things are talking about these things are figurative he did not literally transform into a worm but let me tell you something our sin, When it was on Christ, not only did it make him a reproach of man, it made him disgusting even in the eyes of God the Father who had to look away from him and he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But we understand what was disgusting on that cross was not the sinless Son of God, but it was our sins that he was carrying on that cross. They were vile, they were disgusting. And while men were disgusted by it and he was a reproach of man, you know what? We look to that for our salvation. That is where our salvation comes from. And it is, it's a beautiful thing to us, the the because of the hope that comes from it. But folks, that's not what Sluter sees when he sees that passage. You know what happens when a natural man is convinced that every word in the Bible is true? They come up with crazy sci fi type carnality. That's why they teach. Angels and humans intermingling with each other. That's why Sluter teaches we're going to, about aliens and how we're gonna inhabit other planets one of these days. That's why Peter Ruckman wrote about the blood sucking vampires from Mars and things that he came up with in the scriptures. Because when natural men get convinced that the Bible is the Word of God and they don't have the Spirit of God in them, they they don't know what to do with those scriptures. They read everything in the Bible and it fits their sci-fi mentality, whether it be flat earth nonsense, whether it be Nephilim, whether it be, uh, I don't you know, just all the weird stuff. It's amazing all the weird stuff that, come, that people try to pull out of the Bible. It makes no sense at all, but yet that's all these people can see. You know why? Because it's what they know naturally as brute beasts. And so brute beasts, they speak evil of things they understand not and that is why i mean you should hear guys like sluter how critical he is towards people who teach the death say the death burial resurrections in the old testament he scoffs at that he mocks that and he and he's arrogant about it at the same time while he's preaching jesus transformed into a worm but folks here's the thing too about that notice How it also says in that passage, they laugh me to scorn. Do you think if the soldiers would have watched Jesus transform into a worm, they'd have been laughing? No, that's not what they did. They mocked him. They spit on him. They laughed at him. They said he saved others himself. He cannot save. You know why? Because they could see him on the cross. But he come, he's got it in his head that it was just there's this pitch black and it was during that time. But no, this passage right here, when it's talking about him being a reproach and a worm, it's when people are mocking him because it was it was the, the being a worm, it was all about being a reproach of men. That's when this was fulfilled. When people were mocking him, spitting on him, cursing him. That's when he was the worm. But it was not him transforming into a literal worm with his soul going to hell. Because and why is he, why was he teaching his soul went to hell then? Well, because he can't get around the fact that the Bible teaches his soul went to hell, but he also can't get in trouble with his dispensational buddies by throwing out the Abraham's bosom doctrine. So he's teaching both. And and it's folks, it's even worse what he's teaching. This is what happens when the brute beast gets a hold of the scriptures. And so brute beasts, they will also use words from the Bible, but they will add to them. Revelation twenty two eighteen warns us about this says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the books of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. And so the dispensationalists, they are they're more careful. They're not like the they're not like the Calvinists where they just make up new words. No. The, the dispensationalists, they will often... And they're not the only ones that do some of these examples I'm going to look at. They're not the only ones. But they're they are really good at it. But they'll even take Bible words, and they'll maybe add an S to it. Or they'll add some words after it. For example, too, when talking about salvation, they'll say, repent of your sins. Well, of's in the Bible. Yours in the Bible. Sins is in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. But... Yeah, but where is that phrase when describing salvation? Why do you insist on putting that in your doctrinal statement? And why do you get mad at those who would rather say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved? Even though that's in the Bible a lot, in those words. Especially when a guy said, what must I do to be saved? Uh, what, what do you think that you know, person to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Oh, so you're easy believism. Wait, I don't see that phrase in the Bible either. So what do they do? They make up that term too, and then they demonize it. You know, even though it's fitting, you know, even though I think it's appropriate, but they have demonized that term, easy believism. They've also attached things to it because you can't attach things to the words of God. It's very difficult to do that. So, what they do, they come up with the, you know, they'll say the phrase easy believism and then they attach other things to it to make it seem bad. You know, like everybody does, it's just one, two, three, repeat after me and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and it's, but, you know, in reality, I don't have to use the term easy believism, but all day long I can use believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. Whosoever believeth. I can can find those terms all over the New Testament, but I can't find that repent of your sins term unless I'm looking in the Book of Mormon trying to figure out how I can get over my blackness. Uh, I I can find it. I can find it in there. And uh, if y'all aren't familiar with that, you'll have to go read the Book of Mormon. But you know, again, they insist on using that phrase. They get angry if you challenge them on putting that in their materials. Why? I, listen, you know, I, I, again, some people, they confront the pastors foaming at the mouth. Why does this say repentance? You believe in works salvation. You know, obviously somebody did that. If somebody would have done that to me, I'd be like, you're a weirdo, get out of here. But I, you know, fortunately for me, when I, the way I was challenged on this, it was not by somebody coming up to me foaming at the mouth. I saw a video where somebody was talking about it and I was like, Oh yeah, that makes a good point. I don't think a person's got to quit sinning to be saved. And then I went and I looked at our tracks and I was like, Oh, it says repent of sins in there. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to get rid of those. And, you know, and I, I, did, I had to get rid of some of our stuff. We gave out these John and Romans that had a plan of salvation there that, and, and it had that in there. I was like, I don't want to be giving these out if it's giving people the wrong idea. And so I didn't, I didn't have any problem doing, doing that. I, I have no problem. Again, you know why? Because my doctrine was not repent of sins. It was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when my I'm challenged to be more biblical in my language, if I said repent of sins, I didn't mean quit sinning. I meant change your mind about your sin and believe on Christ. But at the same time, if I'm when I was challenged to be more biblical in how I phrase these things, I had no problem with that because the more biblical terminology did not mess with what I believed in my heart and did not uh, mess with my doctrine. So I have no problem with that. But when people insist and refuse to change, there's something wrong with them. They, they shouldn't have a problem with that. You know, again, dispensations. Because a dispensation, man, you know, I'm already out of time, but it's, it's simply an administration. But that word's only in the Bible four times. So it's easy to not notice it, not notice the meaning, because what do people always say? I don't believe in dispensationalism. Well, the word dispensations in the Bible four times. Well, the word dispensationalism isn't in the Bible four times. The word dispensations isn't even—it's not in the Bible. Dispensation is. What does that mean? Let's define the word. You know, for if I do this thing willingly, I have reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed on me. He's just saying I have this administration. I have this job. I have been given this role. I have been given this job. This. Dispensation is the economy of presenting the gospel to you, Gentiles. That's all that, that's all that is. That's all dispensation is. And yet we have whole books on dispensationalism that doesn't even that barely talk about the gospel going to the Gentiles. That it's it blows my mind. The doctrines of grace. That's a Calvinist thing. You know why they call it the doctrines of grace? Because first off, well, doctrine. I mean. Who doesn't want to believe in the doctrines of grace? Well, wait a minute. I do believe in the doctrine of grace, but they can't say the doctrine of grace because the grace that they teach, you cannot find in the Scriptures. So what they tell you, you know, because we read, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not yourselves, but it is the gift of God. They see that the faith is the gift of God rather than the salvation being the gift of God. And so because... There's so many passages that don't fit Calvinism, especially you can't read anything about grace in the Bible and come up with Calvinism. So you need to understand these other doctrines. So we're going to teach you the doctrine of predestination. We're going to teach you the doctrine of election. And if you understand all these other doctrines, then you'll get grace. Wait a minute. Why can't I study grace to learn about grace? I mean, if we're going to learn about grace, shouldn't we be able to study grace, but not with Calvinists. You've got to learn these doctrines. And that, and, and again, elections is a biblical word. Predestination is a biblical word. But notice, those are also words that aren't in the Bible that much. And they don't use those words the same way. They, so again, it's these are tricky. They add this idea of the doctrines of grace because studying grace will never bring you to their conclusion. So they attach other doctrines to grace Because grace is a very important doctrine that people need for salvation, which is why it is one of the clearer things of the scriptures. It is one of the clearer things. It's easy to understand that salvation is a gift. That's easy to understand. You know why? Because people need that to be saved. This isn't like some of these deeper spiritual truths. This is a very simple bottom shelf thing, but these guys complicate it and they act like you got to be super smart. You got to learn all those big words in order to understand it. You know what this is that they're doing? They're spoiling you with philosophy and vain deceit. We see in Ephesians 4.14, it says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Slight of men. It's like sleight of hand. What is that? When a magician's doing something, they distract, they do something, I don't know any tricks, but they they do something to distract you, so you won't see them do the trick. So they can deceive you like they're doing something great. That's what people do with false doctrine. They use the sleight of men and cunning craftiness. They distract you with another doctrine. They distract you with these other words and things, so you don't see what they're really doing. Is they're messing with they're they're messing with grace. So, when you start, if you study grace, it's going to be very obvious what the Bible teaches about that. So, Calvinists are going to distract you with weird teachings on predestination, on election, limited atonement, all these other things. And they're just tricking you. They're tricking you. They, we should be able to understand grace from studying what the Bible says about grace. But no, they want you to study what the Bible says about predestination and all these other things too, which we can do that and that's fine. But it's all just kind of a rabbit trail to distract you with other things to keep you from seeing what's very obvious. And so brute beasts, they are motivated by the most base and carnal things. Look what it says in verse 11 of Jude. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. And perish in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees of whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness and darkness forever. And let me tell you, they always get caught up in the things of the flesh. Second Peter two. We're talking about the same thing, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart have they exercised with covetous practices, cursed children which have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You want to know what the motivator is for a lot of these things, a lot of these guys? Money. Bill, buy my book, Grady. I know somebody that went soul winning with him, and he was talking to an old lady and tried selling. So he tried selling her his book. You know why? Because he's not thinking about the gospel. He's out there. He's thinking, I want to sell my book. I want to make some money. Man, you don't listen. Don't anybody ever go try selling anything. If you sell stuff when you're out soul winning, represent our church. You don't try selling them anything. Not in the name of our church. Not for yourself either. That is not what we are out to do. That's going to really mess up that message of a free gift that we're trying to tell people about. <laughs> when you're trying to, you know, sell your Tupperware or something like that, don't you dare do that. That'll get you, that'll get you thrown out of the church for sure. But listen, well, you know, because understand too, these people—they're not all sexually immoral. That you know, it wouldn't benefit them financially for being busted for being a pervert. That's not. It's not. It doesn't always manifest itself that way. Did you know, because even lost people are capable of loving their wives or being afraid of them, you know, and, or, and how a divorce would ruin them financially. So, you know, there's lost guys that are in it for the money that are faithful to their wives because they can't afford to get in trouble in that area. So just because somebody stayed married, to somebody doesn't mean they're good. You know, they're not all going to have the same problems, but will always be carnal things. The wages of unrighteousness. The prestige. That was what they told Balaam. I will give you great honor. That's what he kept promoting. I'll give you honor. These guys, they want to be big shots in the Baptist world. They want to be big in some movement or whatever. They want to make the money. But it's always carnal things that they're motivated by. Always. And so the brute beast will always react violently to correction with the words of God. And in John 6, 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. But you know what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6? Give not that which is holy unto the dogs. Neither cast ye or pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Okay, anybody can get mistaken. Anybody can go into error. Anybody can unfortunately be around somebody too long and pick up bad terminology. But what happens when they are corrected with the words of God? Do they thank you? Do they even, You know, and sometimes too, people pride, even say people can struggle with pride. It hurts. You know, and they might not be quick as we would like them to correct themselves in these things. But let me tell you, when they react violently, when they lash out, when they attack, you know what's happening? Their nature's showing. They're showing their fangs. I don't expect everyone that I try to correct on their terminology and stuff to just immediately be like, thank you. Thank you, your royal popeness, and for straightening me out on the rest of my doctrine. Am I doing anything else wrong? I don't, I don't expect that. I, I, I don't need that. But at the same time, if they attack, if they're attacking the words of God, if they just can't bring themselves to be biblical in their language, that's that's a bad sign. It's a very serious thing to mess with the word of God. And it is, isn't it interesting how people who are mostly known for defending the KJV, twist and misuse the words of God worse than probably anyone. The KJV defense is their Trojan horse they use to bring in their dispensational foolishness. And saved dispensationalists shouldn't have a problem with correcting these things that we talked about. We don't need help in def- their help in defending the KJV. We don't need Gipps videos. We don't need their language. We don't need their made-up words like dispensationalism and dispensations. That aren't we don't see those words, but we don't need those things. And so, this is what we were warned about. This is what we talked about tonight. Is exactly what Jude described, and it's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. People get mad, and they think we're mean, and they call us nasty names for it. But this is what we've been called to do. We were told to watch out for these things. I, as a pastor, I am a shepherd. I am supposed to point out these type of things i'm supposed to help you know how to identify these things and so we're going to call this kind of stuff out and so i hope this was a help to you and you'll be able to watch for these things in the future so with that let's pray dear lord we thank you so much for this passage of scripture we thank you for the warnings lord there is no doubt that uh, you always know what's to come uh, you've given us what we need. The warnings are there. If we get in trouble, if we mess up in these areas, it's not your fault, it's ours. And so I pray you'll help us to take these, uh, these passages serious and that we will put them to practice and believe them as they're written. In your name we pray, amen.